Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Dementia. I'm Fanula Sweeney. It's difficult to estimate the exact number of people living with dementia in Ireland, but it's thought to be around 55,000. And each year, more than 7,500 people receive a diagnosis of dementia. In this series, we're looking at various aspects of the disease and what it means to live well with it. In our first episode, we're looking at what dementia means and what it doesn't mean in an effort to create awareness of the disease and reduce stigma surrounding it. Joining me in studio are Dr David Robinson, Senior Clinician at the Memory Clinic at St James's Hospital, Dublin, Helen Rochford-Brennan, who was diagnosed with dementia six years ago. She's also Chair of the European Working Group for People with Dementia and on the board of Alzheimer's Europe. And Dr Dominic Trapel, Health Economist with the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College in Dublin. He's also an Assistant Professor there. Welcome to you all. First of all, Dr Robinson, what is dementia? When we use the word, we mean um, dementia is a syndrome, so it's a clinical presentation. It's something, a pattern that we're looking for. It's got many different underlying causes. Um, By dementia, we mean the person has a memory problem which is interfering with their day-to-day abilities and that they're not independent um, because because of their memory problem. There's lots of different causes, so people talk about Alzheimer's disease, Um, which is one of the underlying causes of dementia. Other common causes are things like hardening of the arteries, which we call vascular dementia. And then there are rarer causes as well. And what is dementia not? What are some of the misconceptions? Well, dementia isn't getting old. Um, Old age, we do slow down as we get old. We can't run as fast when we're older as when we're younger. And sometimes our brains don't work as fast when we're older as when we're younger. But we still, older people are still functioning on a day-to-day basis. So old age is not dementia. Um, it is not a disease of old age. It is associated, your, your risk of increases with old age because as you get older, you've got increased risk of, of, the, of many diseases. Um, uh, but it's, it's not the same as normal ageing. Helen Rochford Brennan, you were diagnosed, as we said, with dementia six years ago. Uh, when did you first notice that something was amiss? Uh, five years prior to that. Um, five I started years. To, yeah, I started to have uh, some problems uh, prior to that. At some stage, I had a head injury. So I would say that it makes it more difficult to diagnose, uh, to diagnose uh, my type of dementia, which is Alzheimer's. Um, so I had spent five years trying to find out why I was forgetting words and um, you were actively seeking I was, assistance. Yeah, I was actively seeking assistance. I worked in the disability sector, so I knew uh, what it was like to use uh, strategies for a head injury, for example. So I, I, I understood all of that. But um, I found myself that I would go to work and the injury hadn't been delegated. And there were I'd go to work the next morning and I realised there was something fundamentally, you know, in the end I knew there was something went fundamentally wrong with me because I just could not seem to um, fulfill my duties and also of course I was having problems with words um, and I was also having problems with remembering names and things that we've done as a family you know that you've you know your husband will tell you something or my son told me something and then I kept forgetting it and as you can imagine, in all families, that created a little problem because if I and I was a very busy community activist, so that I suppose for my family, they thought I was too busy, perhaps if I spent more time with them and listened and spend more time that I wouldn't have all the difficulties that I was experiencing. So they just assumed that you were busy, which is interesting because you seem to have picked up on the symptoms yourself when usually 
it's often that family members notice that there's something amiss. Well, also, I think that there isn't any family that I know of that wants to acknowledge that there is anything, something wrong with their loved one's memory, you know, back then in particular, you know, so. And Helen, can you talk us through to the point where you were diagnosed and how did you feel when you finally, after five years of symptoms, got a diagnosis? Uh, I will, through a human rights lens, I will guide you through what happened to me. I, um, for me, I have to say, I am one of the lucky ones. Now, you might ask me why I say that. But getting a diagnosis was really important to me because there are many people out there today that are not getting a diagnosis. And they're not getting a diagnosis for two reasons. And one is that um, their friendly doctor knows them very well and he doesn't think that he should tell them just yet. And number two is that their families, their families ask the doctors not to tell or the families don't want them to know. And so for me, it's really important that I have a diagnosis and I had the diagnosis. There were many visits to doctors, many different doctors uh, until I was finally and finally diagnosed. And I think that uh, it's important that we get a diagnosis because then you can you have choices, you know, then you can do something with your life. What happens is before that, I went into social isolation, you know, which for once you go into social isolation, you stop meeting your friends because you forget what they told them. You stop, you withdraw from lots of different things because I withdrew from lots of committees because I didn't want to sit at the table like I did at board meetings and the words wouldn't come. And you're sitting there and there's that silence. And then you try to cover up for yourself. And then you know that everybody is thinking, what in God's name is wrong with her? And you that know? is stressful for you. Yeah, which absolutely stressful. Help. And then it brings it back to what David just talked about. Then you get, you know, you get depressed and you get, you know, you get really, what is wrong with me? You know, why can't I do this? And I think from once you're diagnosed and you get that diagnosis, yes, it was a long, painful journey home from Galway to Tupperberry, where I live. And I was on my own. After your diagnosis? After my diagnosis. But I also know that I felt relieved in a way in a very strange way I have to tell you it was a relief for me uh, going home to tell my husband and my son I don't remember the conversation but I remember the pain their pain their pain for us as a family mm. because we knew nothing about the illness uh, we knew nothing about it mm. so you go home and you tell your family and what is early onset Alzheimer's what is it so what do you do there's no supports the doctor had done his job but he couldn't refer me anywhere. Well, let me just um, pause you there for a moment and turn to Dominic Trapel because we've just had a very heard a very personal experience of Helen's. Can you give us a, a general overview of dementia in Ireland? Yeah, sure. Um, so I would have started doing research on dementia in two thousand and eight um, in in Ireland, and and um, at that time we were saying that the the island um, dementia is in the same place that we would have thought of cancer in the 1950s, and there was a, a real lack of hope at that point in time. And I'm delighted to hear some of the stories that Helen's bringing forward that we, you know, we've really started to progress. Because at the same time, uh, back in 2008, I would have been saying the costs of dementia by 2018 will reach one trillion worldwide. So that got the attention, that got the awareness up, and we started to have more focus from policy and, and I'm delighted to say in 2014 we had the implementation of a national dementia strategy in Ireland. And what did that do, the national dementia strategy? What does it mean if a country has one? Okay, so um, 
it can mean a lot of things in different contexts. Um, I mean, it, what it essentially means is there's some form of concerted effort towards rectifying certain issues that haven't been previously addressed. And I think in Ireland, there was a big push to increase the level of awareness, to give uh, packages of intensive care and also to do more community-based interventions. So there was 27 million allocated uh, to that, 15 million from the HSE and 12.5 million from uh, Atlantic Philanthropies. Um, and that, that's been three years in, in the making. There has been the establishment of a national dementia office where there's a team of people that are actively thinking about where should dementia be going. Now, I think that that's great, but we also have to say that we really still, when we talk about that analogy of the 1950s and cancer, really we're still just off the starting blocks. You and know, we, can I just jump in there and say, is it because in the 1950s, cancer was seen as a practically a death sentence? Right. Yeah, it's like you have cancer, get your affairs in order, and that's and and and, and that would have been the kind of the, the advice you would be given. And, and, you know, as passage of time has gone, we've had a lot of focus on cancer, a lot of research money has gone into that, and the world has progressed so that, you know, we, know, we all know nowadays lots of people that have had cancer and have thankfully got over that with treatment uh, we're still struggling with that with dementia it's a completely different scenario and we really do need more awareness of um, how we're going to tackle this problem so let me just uh, uh, bring in here the experience of someone living with dementia um, who found his life had changed quite drastically and often carers of those with dementia speak of the isolation this can involve for them as well as those people living with dementia. Um, people often find it difficult to socialise when they're unable to drive or they don't have the confidence to go out. But as we heard from Helen, socialising is essential and being able to meet others in your situation and perhaps sing at the same time is a wonderful tonic. In Baldoil in North Dublin, the Forget-Me-Nots Choir meets every Tuesday. Aileen O'Mara went along to hear them and meet some members. When I was diagnosed with dementia, the first day I was on our way home, there was a, a sign in the hospital, and they told that for that that there was a, a choir here, and my wife said, "Right, we'll join that," and that's the start of it. Jimmy Duddy has had dementia for five years, but he never misses his rehearsals for the Forget-Me-Nots choir. Orla Horan set up the choir when her own mother got dementia. Now there are over 100 regular members. And when they join something where all you have to do is sing, you don't have to make any commitment, you don't have to chat to people if you feel awkward. They discover in the most natural way how nice it is to kind of re-communicate with people from all walks of life. Dementia means no driving for Jimmy, a huge loss of his independence. That card held me in big time. I couldn't go to a match. I couldn't go anywhere. Like, I was used to just running out the door, jump into the car and go wherever I'm going on my own time. And now I have to get somebody to come with me. Bring me. It's a whole new life, and it, it, and it's 
third fella, because I, I, I go to all the matches and I couldn't get going because and I, I'd be in Crawford Park every day, every Sunday, not now, you know, was one of the, bad, the things about my speech, it's coming and going and, and I get speech therapists and uh, sometimes it's got okay and other times it's not and then a lot of people they're very they're not patient they when you start it's just a stumble they finished finished the world war and that makes the, the thing worst so and you can't uh, do anything and you don't know how to to, to uh, talk to keep to, to you, you have the words but they won't, they won't come out this is about making them know that there's a place in our community that they're a part of and that it's as normal as somebody having any other type of thing going on. And for the time that they're here, they sing what they're able to sing. Some just love to hum. Some love to clap along. What does it mean for you to be able to come to the choir every week? It's lovely because I've not got to know everybody. It's like a close-knit family. Everybody knows everybody. And that was the Forget Me Not Squire ending that report by Aileen O'Mara and Bal Doyle in North Dublin. And some of the issues raised there very clearly by Jimmy is the fact that the choir gives him a sense of social engagement. Is that something you can relate to, Helen? Well, no matter what you do, I think social engagement is really important uh, to you. I was very lucky in one way after spending almost a year at home socially isolated to be able to take part in cognitive rehabilitative therapy through uh, Trinity College, uh, some research work that they were doing in conjunction with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. And I am so grateful today for that because that gave me a sense of purpose. It taught me again how to use uh, my computer, how to help me. I couldn't construct a sentence. I still have major difficulties with writing. Um, uh, and it helped me to have my whiteboard, have all my sticky notes, have a structure, have a plan every day that when I was forgetting things, it was OK. You know, to, as as um, most of us are women, you know, that uh, have have this illness. That we, we do lots around the house. So therefore, it was important, you know, turn off the stove, uh, close the fridge door, lock the lock the door. You know, you have a whole 
basic things that you have to do. And I think that that then gives you an outlet, then it helps you to get out and to get on and to re-engage with your community. And for me, the most important thing was to re-engage with something that I did. And out of that rehabilitative therapy, somebody had said to me, you know, about re-engaging with the community and to re-engage. And that was, really, it was magical, you know, because then you feel all is not dead. All is not gone. All you feel in the beginning, all I felt for those first 10 months was grief. Grief for a life that I would never have. Grief for my family. You know, I go and I get a diagnosis and, you know, what happens to that relationship, that family relationship, that husband-wife relationship. You go, you get your diagnosis, your lover, your best friend, your companion. And all that dynamic changes. Do you think that the relationships are are stronger as a result of you confronting the Alzheimer's and doing something about it with this research in cognitive rehabilitation? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Because then, not alone you looking at what you think you're never going to be able to participate in or do again, or you're almost afraid to turn on the stove, you're almost afraid to go and drive, you know, you're... Um, thank heavens I never give up driving and I continue to do my driving test every year, which is very important to me because uh, one of the things that I knew I may have lost many things, but my sense of direction and my driving ability was still very much to the fore. Jimmy Duddy in that report talks about driving and how important it is. Uh, Is is this a conversation, David, that um, has to be confronted early on? We try and bring it up with every patient who's driving. Now, to be honest, it has to be assessed on an individual basis. There are many people with memory problems and dementia who are safer drivers than, you know, the average 20-year-old man. So, um, uh, but it has implications for insurance. So the way we look at it is we're not the police. Um, this is about protecting the patient or the person with dementia. It has to be, has to have an, uh, an open and above board discussion about it. So, yeah, lots of people with memory problems are safer on the ward, on, on the road than, um, than um, younger than the male ward. drivers, for instance. <laughs> the other side of it is, Driving a car is a privilege, it's not a right. Um, we, we all must accept that for most of us, unless we die in a car accident, we're going to spend some of our lives unable to drive for either medical or, or other reasons. So I think the answer to that, I mean, driving, as we've heard, many people say it's 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 a means to an end, it's a means to social engagement, it's a means to independence. And there may be other ways of meeting that, of, of allowing that to happen. And the other conversation um, that is sometimes difficult for someone who's just been diagnosed with dementia to hear is the level of alcohol intake. That has, uh, uh, by all accounts, a profound effect on can do, how certainly. the dementia can progress. Yeah, yeah, I mean, alcohol is a neurotoxin. You know, we all know that if you drink enough on any given night, you're certainly going to be confused. And if you drink enough over a prolonged period of time, that can have an effect. And in Ireland, we have a, a, a difficult relationship with alcohol anyway. So it certainly doesn't help, and we give that advice. But I think lots of patients take a philosophical attitude to that also. And Helen, um, did was alcohol something you had to consider? No. or? It was never that considered, but it was something that you'd almost consider because, you know, today we have every other day we can look at the uh, media rags, I call them, and see uh, a diagnosis or that we if I drank two glasses of champagne a day. So I think my husband sort of knocked that one in the head, thought it wasn't a very good idea that we need a bottle of champagne in the house every day. Uh, a great idea. Red mm. wine, another one. You know, so uh, for me, it wasn't an issue. But I, but I know people that it is an issue for, certainly. And it's an issue because uh, 
for example, when you when you read that, you are you know you really are looking for that cure, and there are people out there that are really believing this that you know this may help them. So you're saying that there are sometimes misreports in in the media that there's yeah. there's not solid reporting. Yes, and solid reporting. I only read something actually yesterday uh, um, or in the last couple of days that you know alcohol um, is very related to Alzheimer's. You know again. I think some of it is the behaviours that come with that. So in my experience in the clinics, the people who do well are the people who stay engaged, who stay active, who look for novelty, um, who stay intellectually, socially, physically active. People who are seeking alcohol often aren't doing those other things as well. You know, what they're looking for is to drink. And that might be at home by themselves or it might be down in the pub. And there, there, there are options for interaction. There are options for the type of stuff that Helen is doing are very limited. So there's a lot of beha- behaviours associated with the drinking that may not be good for brain health. And Dominic, let me turn to you. Can you predict what that, how that underlying level of demand is going to increase over the years? So, so yes, at the moment, we, we, the current estimates in Ireland are that there's 55,000 people living with dementia. Um, we expect that that's going to grow to 115 in the next 20 years. Um, so that's pretty linear growth that we expect to happen. So it's very easy to pre- make the prediction of how the levels of services will need to increase over that time. So we can plan it. I don't think that's the main issue, though. I think the main issue is, right, so once we have the diagnosis, we need to take ownership of providing the appropriate levels of care. And is there any research to suggest that taking ownership at an early stage with a timely diagnosis can actually save money in the long run? So I think that's a clinical question, but and certainly um, the, the evidence underlying some of the drug treatments, so uh, in terms of uh, treating it early and mid-stage, um, suggests that they're cost-effective. They, uh, by um, delaying the progression of the d- disease, that's producing sufficient levels of health that compared to any other investment the health system would make, it's value for money. So that's certainly a good reason that we should try and diagnose people early and, and, and at timely points. Helen, let me ask you about an issue we haven't touched on yet, which is caregiving. Do you have care at home? Do you have assistance? No, I have nothing. Do you have people that you need in your life to help you get through the week or the day? Uh, yes, I have I have my husband. I have the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, which where I have uh, do my advocacy work and I have my colleagues in Alzheimer's Europe. But when we talk about care, I think one of the uh, one of the issues that I have around the world carer and care is that when I was diagnosed, I didn't need a carer. You know, in Ireland, I'm sorry to have to say this, but it's a financial thing. It's a finan- It's used as, as a financial aid in, in, a, in a lot of families. And this is not a myth. This is fact. So we must look at what we need when we're diagnosed. Did I need a carer? No, I didn't. I needed someone to support me to carry on doing what I did before I was diagnosed. Carry on being a wife, being a mother, being a homemaker, doing whatever I wanted to do. So I think the carer bit comes later. Um, uh, have I support? Yes, I can get support through uh, some support through the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. There's very little funding. There's very few programmes out there for people with early onset Alzheimer's. And that is the problem that you have, which is difficult. When my doctor diagnosed, he was honest. He Mm. told me, he told my husband and I, I am really sorry, there's nothing we can offer you because... 
And, and just to bring in, bring, go back to this point of the, the cognitive rehabilitation, David, what is going on with that in the, in the brain that allows Helen to continue living an well, independent it's life? It's about using it, use, using it or losing it in many ways. I mean, we know that if you put a person, and I've seen this happen clinically, if you put a person in an environment with very little stimulation where they're not doing very much, they will lose mental capacity. Similarly, if a person with dementia, with a diagnosis, isn't getting engaged and, and stimulated, they will do worse. So the idea of cognitive rehabilitation, I suppose, is to teach a person strategies to keep them engaged uh, and also to exercise their brain in order to mitigate the effects of the disease. And so what you're saying, Helen, that has helped you more than a carer that you did not need and still don't need. Yeah, I don't. I just need support. And that's where we get support from, from organisations to do. And volunteers, you know, what support do I need? Maybe I needed a volunteer, which I now have a volunteer that travels with me and helps me travel uh, throughout Europe or the world to, to do advocacy work. So that's, you know, we need um, the Alzheimer's Society team can support me if there's something that I am stressed about, I can ring them and ask them. But is there specific help there? Mm-hmm. No, there isn't for people with early onset Alzheimer's. And it, it, can I just tell you why I think as as the person or the patient, whatever I am with the illness, why it's so important to have it early, to get that help early? Because when we are given help early, and it goes back to value-based healthcare. I have absolutely cost this health, the state, nothing. The only thing I get free from this state is cognitive behavioural therapy from time to time, which has helped me to deal with the grief of my, um, of the death of my um, brother, or some things, my husband getting very ill at the moment, how to deal with it. I can dip in and I can dip out of that therapy. And is that freely available to everyone in Ireland who's got a diagnosis? So, so I don't think so. I think we're, we're now moving into a, a, a new strategy, I, I think it's fair to say, that we start, we're starting to have a look at the non-pharmacological approaches that we need to be scaling up because certainly... Uh, the medical model does focus on the symptoms and, 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 you know, trying to delay the disease progression. However, there is there is a lot more benefits that are not necessarily a medical benefit. Uh, you know, that, that being able to live independently and, as you quite rightly say, uh, being able to continue with all the roles and responsibilities that you need to have in daily life. I think that whatever the programmes are that get, to, in Helen's case, cognitive rehabilitation therapy, but in someone else's case, it might be something completely different. Those are the things that we do need to kind of really start to focus on. And how close are we to getting that, do you think? Or, or, or if you said earlier, we're just off the starting block. So, so yeah, well, I think that uh, we, we need to start thinking about where, how are we developing our system? Because these are questions that we don't know how to answer at the moment. We don't know what the right decisions are to, to allocate resources. So how we get to that is, is research, I think. You know, we need to start saying that we need to prioritise research for, for example, cognitive rehabilitation therapy. Is there a study in Ireland going on to show that what, what Helen benefited for, from that, you know, the population would as well? And do, can we show the government that that should be funded? And, and does someone like David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister a number of years ago in, in, in Britain, saying, you know, I want to make dementia research a priority, yeah. uh, that obviously had a huge impact there. Yeah, so, yeah, so David Cameron saying that uh, uh, the UK will be the best country in the world to, for dementia and the best place in the world for have uh, dementia research set set the target in the country, you know, and, and I think that we shouldn't shy away from that. We should say, well, we're going to compete for that because I think Ireland does do a lot of very good work for that and we should be doing that. So what does someone like David Cameron when he was Prime Minister in Britain saying, I'm going to make dementia research a priority for this country? 
Okay, so um, aiming to be the the best country in the world uh, for to have dementia and to have the best country in the world to for dementia research has meant a lot of profound changes have happened in, in England. Um, they've invested sixty million a year in research, and they are targeting for that to double within the next few years. Uh, when we compare to cancer, one one in five people with cancer are in are in research studies. Back at that stage, there would have been one in a hundred people in, with dementia in a research study. That's meant that now one in twenty people are in research. And for research is so important. It's important for people like myself that have the illness. We have the experiential knowledge. We can give our knowledge of what it's like to live with the illness, and we can help you to transform how our lives will be in the future. And just a final word on that note, Helen. I mean, you've been living with dementia for 11 years now, at least the beginning symptoms of it. And how has being an advocate changed your life or improved your life or otherwise? Well, it has given me a sense of purpose. It has given me a sense of wanting to belong and to know that I am not going to, uh, at this moment in time, it's not a death sentence you know, when I was diagnosed, I thought this is the end of the li- the end of my life. Nothing will ever be as it was. No, nothing ever is as it was. There's no question about that. Every day is a struggle. There are times that I explain that I have anxiety, which was part and parcel of Alzheimer's. But I must learn to cope with that to the best I can. But I think advocacy has saved my life. And the other thing is that when, and I'll just finish on this note about advocacy, I remember going somewhere and a lady came up to me and said, a young woman in her 50s, and she said, Helen, I have all your clippings from the papers. I listen to everything on YouTube or playback that you've done. You keep me going, you keep me alive. If you know of someone who's listening who may be worried they have symptoms, what would you say to them, Helen? I would say, please go, and if you have a memory clinic, go to a memory clinic, which I hope is going to be throughout Ireland very soon. Uh, But go to your doctor. It may only be, uh, it may it may not be anything to do with Alzheimer's or with dementia. It may just be a normal ageing process. Or it may be that you have some other issues in your life, um, depression or whatever. Uh, but just please go and get a diagnosis because then you will have peace of mind. And if you had, do get a diagnosis, it is not the end of the world. Please continue doing what you did. My thanks to Helen, David and Dominic. You've been listening to Let's Talk Dementia, a new decade production. I'm Fanula Sweeney. And to hear this episode again and others in the series, please go to www.understandtogether.ie forward slash Let's Talk Dementia. Or you can find us on Twitter at Let's Talk Dementia Ireland. And if you have any questions or concerns about dementia, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland National Helpline is 1800 341 341. Or you can email helpline at alzheimer.ie. Let's Talk Dementia has been funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Mm-hmm.